The Graphic Possibilities Podcast is the official podcast of the Graphic Possibilities Research Workshop at Michigan State University. This is a graduate research workshop in the Department of English that engages with comics through two interrelated branches, critical inquiry and engaged pedagogy, led by Professor Julian Chambliss and graduate coordinators Justin Weigard and Nicole Huff. This season, we will be speaking with comics educators, makers, and scholars from around Michigan State University in a monthly podcast series. Given our distance this fall, we wanted to bring the conversation right to you, bridging the gap in space through the digital medium. In this episode, Justin and Julian are joined by guest host Professor Gordon Henry to speak with Alina Pete and Kel McDonald about their new Kickstarter, The Woman in the Woods and Other North American Stories an all-new anthology of comics inspired by original North American folktales from artists and writers from indigenous nations across the continent. This is the fifth entry in the Cautionary Fables and Fairy Tale series and the 30th comic published by Iron Circus Comics. We've actually got a link to their Kickstarter in our show notes, which is currently live and runs until September 10th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Listen to our episode and go check them out. Gordon Henry is an enrolled member of the White Earth Anishinaabe Nation in Minnesota. Dr. Henry is also a professor in the English department here at MSU, where he teaches American Indian literature, creative writing, and the creative process in integrative arts and humanities. Alina Pete is a Cree artist and writer from Little Pine First Nation in Western Saskatchewan. They are best known for their Aurora award-winning webcomic, We're Geek, which you can find at weregeek.com and for their Schuster-nominated anthology, Life Finds a Way. Alina also writes short stories, poems, and RPG supplements, and their work has been featured in several comic anthologies, including Moonshot Volumes 2 and 3. Kel McDonald has been working in comics for over a decade. Most of that time has been spent on their webcomic, Sorcery 101. More recently, they've organized the Cautionary Fables and Fairy Tales anthology series while contributing to other anthologies like Dark Horse Presents, Smut Peddler, and Sleep of Reason. They've also worked on Buffy, the high school years. They recently finished their creator-owned series, Misfits of Avalon, and the Eisner-nominated Stone King. They're currently working on their self-published series, The City Between, and their work can be found at kelmcdonald.com. And now, our interview with Alina Pete and Kel McDonald. Well, um... I'm going to start with the first question, and uh, as, I said, as I said at the very beginning, I was really intrigued by this project, and I was really excited about the opportunity to talk to you about it, in part because one of the concerns that we have here as a, a comic research workshop is around re- race and representation, and so the opportunity to talk to creators about a, a comic project that sort of focuses on Indigenous people is really interesting for us. There are more and more people who are creatives, who are indigenous, who are creating work and that's getting more and more attention. But there's also a lot of questions related to the term indigenous and the indigeneity and its representation in American popular culture in particular. So one of the things that I noted in some of the information about this project is that you put a lot of effort into curating the list of creators that were involved in the project. And I was really kind of curious, can you talk a little bit about, especially given some of the recent controversies around identity and indigenous people, can you talk a little bit about the criteria that went into creating that list and, and the importance of that to you in terms of the, the centrality to this project? 
Yeah, I mean, um, we knew going in, uh, I think one of the first things that um, Kel and I talked about when they when they brought me on board was like, we know that since we're telling Indigenous stories, we want all our creators, artists and writers to be Indigenous. Uh, and we want to represent as wide a breadth of North America's people as we can. Um, so a lot of the early part of the list was going through and sort of going, okay, who who do we want who do we need to represent here and try to get people representing as many different nations as possible? Um, we also had a bunch of considerations of uh, the fact that Indigenous stories um, all belong to the nations uh, that they're from. Um, and there's a lot of different traditional protocol that goes into telling the stories and learning them. Um, I was actually trained by my mother uh, growing up as a storyteller. Um, so I know how the long process it takes to earn the right to tell a story and then the work it takes to keep telling that story, to keep it fresh in your mind. There, there are living thing stories. So you really need to treat them with respect. Um, and so we uh, asked all of our writers, um, like even before we, we signed them on, we were like, look, if you wanna be part of this project, you're gonna have to go out and do whatever protocols your people have um, to make sure that you have the right to tell these stories in this format. Uh, and I think it was really important to approach it that right way because it, traditional knowledge is so, important. Uh, and in the past, a lot of story anthologies were done without the input of Native people. It was uh, anthropologists largely going and talking to Indigenous people, maybe not even giving them an honorarium, and then taking and publishing those stories. Uh, I was just going to say, like, part of why uh, I approached Alina is because since I knew that she would be more familiar with all those different protocols, um, it's kind of, as the series goes on, like each volume focuses on a different region. And so like we try, uh, we've been trying to make sure that we are respecting each region and it, so each one has different challenges and, um, that's why we got Alina on the team. <laughs> well, I, I'd follow up there too. And I want to say, I, I appreciate that approach, Alina. I think, um, you know, as, as ceremonial people, people who um, have encountered and experienced Indigenous knowledge all our lives, we realize the importance of consulting with the right people on those kinds of uh, stories as they're represented in any format, whether it be uh, through retelling or writing or even graphic form. And so for me, one, you know, one of the questions that comes up for me as a literature, literature person was I've seen this tension over the years between literature an oral tradition uh, that played out for generations, 50, 60, 70, still playing out now. Who tells the story? Who has the right? And along with that, when we started getting into the realm of graphic literature and graphic representations and comics, um, my questions then have to do with uh, what you mentioned as story beings. That's the way I look at them, Atsukan. These story beings travel with these stories, are part of the stories, and embody the stories in some ways. So my question is, uh, goes to the, the depiction of those story beings in image. Um, a lot of times these story beings were not depicted in images. And so it becomes um, a question of how do you put a face to those often faceless narrative story beings that might not have been depicted? Any thoughts yeah, on that? that's a tough one. And it's one that we had to grapple with. There's actually one of the stories in the anthology. Um, there is a creature in it that we can't name. Uh, and protocol is not to name it. So we had a discussion with the writers about like, how do you want to depict this creature? Um, uh, it's, a, it's a creature from Navajo mythology and uh, it often um, takes other forms 
uh, which is uh, a clue to which one it is and why we don't talk about it. Um, so when we were speaking with them and with the, the writer and artist, they had a long conversation about like, how do we want to depict this? And it was um, deemed best to depict it in a shape that was recognizable. So it takes the form of a horse in this story. But from the way the story is framed, you know which creature we're talking about and what it is and that it's powerful. Um, and in that one particular, it was also, um, since it's not supposed to be named, um, one of the, the point of that story is supposed to be, this is why you don't say its name. Yeah. So someone in the story has to say it, but with rather than writing it down, uh, we had a discussion about like, what to do with the lettering to sort of obscure it. And like, so we decided to um, squiggle out in the speech bubble, like, um, cause there are other options of like leaving out letters or using asterisks, yeah. but we thought since it's comics, like it would be more fun if it was squiggled out because that also like implies it's shape changing nature. Yeah. And, yeah, and that uh, tension you mentioned is actually like one of the main plot points of that story. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear you both say that too, because like the, the thing that, that was burning in my head and sort of the, one of the questions we end up asking all of our guests, but also the thing I'm really curious about is sort of like why turn to comics and graphic narratives to, for these, these visual representations um, of these narratives, right? Like what is it about the comics medium that kind of gives those kinds of affordances or really just, you know, why comics, I guess? Um, I particularly like comics. Uh, I'm dyslexic and was a bad reader as a kid, but always liked learning about folklore and mythology and um, uh, tales and like comics became like the medium that I gravitated to when it came to consuming stories. Um, so part of making the series is for like kids that are that type of reluctant reader and um, helping them like learn things like and not treat them like they're not smart because they can't read as well as other kids so yeah. I think it's also a nice chance to um, feature some of the the things that makes indigenous art really special like some of the art we got in these pages is really really amazing and I am um, it's it's stuff that you would see in paintings most often but it's really neat to see it used to tell a story this way Could I follow up with that as well? I think that's that's something that you mentioned in the interview um, about the Sky Woman story and the depiction of that Sky Woman. I mean, in, in some ways, the Sky Woman as presented there in that cover image um, is a sort of contemporary uh, image in some ways in the way the dancer is, uh, but set against that mythic background of the of the Northern Lights. And, and but I was most interested in the depiction of the turtle because mm. it suggests that. Um, there's some connection with the artist's work and um, even traditions in indigenous art or in this case, Anishinaabe art. Um, that's an X-ray piece that we call it X-ray art in the old days uh, associated with Norvell Morso. And so I, I thought, uh, you know, I just wonder if you could speak to the motifs of the artist too. Are they relying also on uh, those kind of image depictions? Yeah, um, I was actually the one that tackled the cover and uh, for doing it, I, I drew from a bunch of different sources. So uh, the Northern Lights um, are very, Ted uh, Morrison, who's not an indigenous right author or artist, um, but whose art I was always surrounded with as a kid. And I kind of came to 
associate with the North. Um, my, my grandmother actually went up and uh, was working in Yellowknife. Uh, so she brought a lot of his work home. Um, and then the turtle itself, I did several goes of because the original one I did was more woodland style art, more wood, woodland Cree, which I'm most familiar with. Um, and I found I really wanted to show in the shell the idea that it would become the land. Um, so then I looked at a bunch of uh, other art styles and I opened up that shell with the x-ray style and then had the trees and the plants growing up within it to show that turtle held all this within them uh, and was gonna bring it forth soon. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about this collection from the, the information is out there, some of the imagery, of course, is, is about um, a kind of question around gender and gender identity. And I really wanted to ask you about, you know, thinking about the collection as a whole, is there something or what are the things that, that we can glean from a sort of indigenous culture about gender and how we think about gender? And you know how does how does the comic form allow you to sort of achieve um, important outcomes related to that discussion? Yeah, we were having a conversation about this the other day, weren't we, Cal? Where we were looking at yeah, uh, uh, we didn't <laughs> realize that almost the entire team was LGBT until yeah. like someone pointed it out. So that was just who um, responded to our invites. And, yeah, and then um, you and I both use they, them and, pronouns. So yeah, we, like, so, we have a very uh, gender diverse team of people yeah, here. So. Um, but I think that's, it really ties into indigenous culture. Um, we had a lot of different genders uh, and recognized more than just two genders um, in different ways through different nations. But uh, there's been a lot of, Reseeking those traditional um, ways of gender expression, uh, which I think are really, really powerful. And I'm really glad to see so many Indigenous creators uh, feeling safe enough to, to um, represent themselves truthfully. So when you think about, I just want to follow up on that question, because when you think about this as a, a comic project, and comics in the United States in particular are... Um, it's a complicated thing, but they're, they're, they're associated as a juvenile medium, but that's not the case in the rest of the world. And so do you, when you think about this collection, do you think about it having an opportunity to really kind of open the discussion for a kind of American audience, or does this play differently when you think about sort of indigenous populations, not just simply in the United States, but also in other parts of the world? Are you a part of like a, because this, this series itself has moved around the world over time. And so I really, it's really interesting to think about questions of culture, questions of identity, playing themselves out in comics and the unique power of comics to tell those stories. So like the whole idea for the series is like I mentioned that I really like folklore. And um, so I, it being a kid-friendly series is supposed to like be kind of the first step to them broadening the horizons and learning more and that's sort of been how I've approached all the books is like um so it's I want to include as much as possible but also make sure that a kid who is unfamiliar with that culture can understand it like in the Oceana one um there is a, a story from the Philippines um and the artist asked if he could put it in uh Telog, um and I set and put it in a Bebe and script. And I told him like, as long as 
a kid who doesn't speak that language can follow the story like pantomime wise. So it made his art job a little bit harder. And then I said, also, it would be cool if you could do like a small vocabulary lesson at the end of the story and so kind of work with them so he could share that part of his culture with uh, and a, primarily an audience that would be English speaking and unfamiliar with it. And that's sort of been the approach for all of them is trying to uh, be as authentic as possible, but also let kids use it as a learning experience if they're unfamiliar. Yeah, and one thing I like about comics is uh, that it does make it kind of approachable for people. I know a lot of things people have asked me, um, uh, usually sort of like white allies um, have asked like, am I allowed to enjoy native stories? Am I allowed to create, uh, collect native art? Like, is that appropriation or is that just appreciation? And uh, I, I think this is a really good way. I wanna let people know that like they can read this anthology and enjoy it. It's not just for indigenous people. Uh, and it's in fact good to get non-Indigenous people more familiar with our, with our stories. Um, they'll see that we have a lot of different stories to tell that are very human and that have lots of different genres. Like I really love that in this anthology, we got like a horror story and uh, uh, like a, a really family kind of story uh, as well as like a creation story. So we have all kinds of genres. It's not just one kind of legend. And, you know, going, going off of that, um, I realized we, we kind of, we're, we're so excited to talk with you all. Could you give us a brief like rundown of the, the stories that you have in the comic? I know it's on the Kickstarter, but we'd love to hear your perspective on the graphic narratives that you're you're representing here, right? Okay, I have to pull up the list so I don't accidentally yeah. <laughs> I was just like, where's my, where's my phone? <laughs> not, not to put you on the spot or anything, but we're going to put you on the spot very briefly. Okay, so we have, uh, as it was told to me uh, by Elijah Forbes, um, and it's a creation myth um, from, I, Alina, how do I pronounce that? Because I've only seen it written down. Oh, Adawa? Um, yeah, Adawa. Uh, and then uh, Chukfai, uh, the trickster rabbit um, by Jordan Alej and uh, Makala Nava. Um, and then we have uh, White Horse Plains, um, which is um, a kind of a cautionary story about, about greed um, and also kind of star-crossed lovers uh, by Rel McGregor. I like to call um, that one our, our Game of Thrones story because it's all about like political yeah. intrigue and marriage. I like yeah, that one. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there's uh, Ruguru, which uh, since I like werewolves a lot, um, is... Uh, my favorite is by Maja Ambrose and Milo Applejohn. Um, and then um, Anjin in the Water uh, by Alice R.L. Um, and it's about um, a tribe that is fighting off a drought um, and um, they get uh, help from a uh, Mishi Peshu uh, spirit. Water links, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Woman in the Woods is um, a story um, by Mercedes Acosta. And um, it's a, tino, a Cuban Tino artist. Um, and so it's about a mysterious uh, uh, spiritual woman that can pop up and protect or harm families, depending on how you treat them. Um, and then Into the Darkness by Izzy Roberts is uh, the one about the shape-shifting creature that we're not going to say its name. 
Thank you very much. I, I recognize that, that we did put you on the spot a tiny bit, but also like uh, <laughs> part of part of why we were so excited about this, this project too, is that um, our podcast is really aimed at comics educators and comics makers too, who are looking to, you know, engage with these texts in different ways. And, and a lot of us are, are looking to like bring comics like this into the classroom. And in listening to you talk about it and in reading through the Kickstarter, it seems like your book has a lot of uh, educational connections. Um, could you maybe give us any advice or insight, uh, advice particularly for like comics educators or folks who are making comics, uh, things that you've learned from doing this Kickstarter or just in your uh, trade in working in comics? Um, as far as comics, it's the best way to learn is to do it. Um, that's the, the thing about comics is that it is easy to do kind of solo. So the best way to learn about making comics is to jump right in. Um, yeah. And then I think the whole series is just fantastic for bringing into classrooms because it's, it's all these like really short stories that give you the complete story. Um, and it, if you read them all at once, like you get this wonderful spectrum of similarities and differences between cultures. Like there was stories in the Africa edition that I'd never come across before, but that are delightful and I love them. Uh, I really like that edition. Um, and then someone commented on like one of the reviews that we got for the Asia one is there's a story in the Asia one that is almost exactly the same beat by beat of an Africa one. Yeah. Um, only like the animal is different. And so that's kind of interesting as well. Um, yeah, I would like to follow up a little bit on that. Um, of course, one of the things that did intrigue me as someone who thinks about and, and um, teaches about comics is that comics are a place where sort of first in terms of representation are, are these hard fought battles sometimes. And yeah, I, I think in the last few years, there's been an increasing number of like anthologies about Native American anthologies coming from Native American creators. And I wonder, you know, when you think about the stories that you grew up seeing and related to Native Americans in uh, popular culture versus the stories that you're, you're producing and, and you're seeing produced, what do you think it says um, in terms of, are we better? Or, or what is the nature of that transformation? Because I, I, you can never totally be better. <laughs> <laughs> probably that's that's the wrong question that's a that's a professorial fail but is there a way how how, how can we judge progress because I, I think for students often when i'm talking about representation and you're talking about culture they really struggle with where are we in in totality and and that's and that is a hard question often to answer yeah I got a funny story about that, actually. <laughs> so representation when I was young, uh, I was really big into Star Trek The Next Generation. That was like my show. I heard the theme music come on. I was like in the living room. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so uh, I was watching it the one night. There's that episode that Wesley Crusher goes to the planet of Native people. And there's the, like the mystical Native time traveler, like takes him off into space. Uh, and it was this it was like the youngest bit of cognitive dissonance I can remember because I remember being so excited to see someone native on screen. 
uh, even though the actor actually wasn't native and that was a whole thing. But uh, I was just like, whoa, native culture in space, like we exist in the future. That's amazing. I love this. But then also really uncomfortable about the fact that it was like wooden flutes and so tropish. And I was just like, my mom was watching it with me and we looked at each other at the episode finish and we were like, did that just happen? Was that? But I was like, yeah, but it was like really good to see us on TV, right? Like I was really excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a big conversation about that because we weren't we weren't on TV, we weren't in books. Like you couldn't find uh, Native people on television outside of like a cowboy movie. Uh, and then we always got shot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think about the anthology now and I think about like my little cousins reading it and seeing themselves in these stories. And that makes me really excited. Uh, and then I think about some of the other projects that are out there, like uh, Coyote and Crow, uh, the uh, tabletop role-playing game, which is all about like indigenous culture. It looks amazing. Um, and just all these opportunities that kids these days are going to have that I didn't growing up to see themselves represented in media is so powerful and so exciting. And it's also, I think, like um, a thing about like when someone gets to be the focus of a story, but it's not about that identity, I, I start, I really appreciate when like that is starting to happen more and more um, that we're getting um, stories that aren't about the suffering of said identity. Like the thing that I got really frustrated with was a lot of um, I'm not like other girls narratives. Um, and other like all the queer stories about how sad it is to be queer and all like just all going on and on and on like that. And it's kind of um, now um, I was, uh, I think it's like, there's a, I forget who told me this joke, but it was a, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. And so it's kind of when everyone can have the confidence of a mediocre white man is uh, my goal. <laughs> Excellent. Gordon, I think you, you're going you're gonna yeah, yeah, to. I, I would like to just follow up on sort of the, uh, you know, it, it's, it's written that somewhere in there that these are original folk tales, so to speak, you know, still in some ways referring back to the anthropological language of folk tales that we both talked about stories and story beings and so forth. But I wonder if there's anything in this, uh, in this work that also allows viewers, readers, people who engage with the comics to really get a sense of the imaginative world of the cultures that these stories derive from. Um, because I think one of the things that's hard for people to really wrap their minds around is how much of a living world we're in. And, um, so I wonder if the stories do that to some extent. I mean, in this transference to animals and so forth, you know, not just gender, but even to you know, other species, animals, trees, rocks, whatever. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, I'd like to know that Elijah's, as it was told by me, um, they're, they do a very good job of relating the creation myth to like the present day, but also like moments in history and kind of, how like in the creation of this world that's creating all of history like at once is kind of implied so um i liked that sort of angle um and then the way um uh jordan and 
Macaulay uh, did the Chukfi animals, like their designs I thought were really interesting and also they like change in, during the story, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's a question that I've struggled with in my own work too, um, not just in this anthology, but in other work that I've been doing lately, where there's such a wealth of, of um, like you said, like richness and imagination and time isn't linear, everything kind of goes in circles. Uh, and that can be really hard to pack into a medium that has to be as condensed as comics. Um, so uh, like I have an eight page story where I wanted to have all of the um, richness of the Ruguru tales where it's where it's like you're not supposed to look at the, them or you'll change too. But it's sometimes if you look at them with love and if you know their name, you're safe from that without just spelling it out for the readers. And that was a really tough line to walk to get that wealth and richness in there. But you only have eight pages and you're telling it, you know, panel by panel. So you have to really, really, really condense. Um, so I hope that people will get a lot of the richness of these tales from the combination of the words and the beautiful illustrations. Yeah. And uh, on that note too, um, we know that you all are pressed for time. Uh, unfortunately, our podcast is compressed too, and we're, we're running short. So uh, we like to end our episodes by um, giving you all the spotlight. And I, have, I happen to have your Kickstarter up. Your Kickstarter just crossed the eighty thousand dollar uh, threshold. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and so, um, which also congrats uh, to a very very successful Kickstarter. Um, is there anything that you want to uh, tell the audience and the listeners that about the Kickstarter about the anthology that um, you haven't gotten to talk about yet, or that you really want to highlight uh, for folks who might not know anything about it just yet? Uh, the better the Kickstarter does, the better the artists get paid. So, um, like the more the Kickstarter, like the better and the more successful the Kickstarter is, it's going directly to the artists to help support them. So. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we have a, a, a big announcement that's coming next week, but I don't know if we want to talk about that Kel yeah we're gonna save that for Monday cool we'll save that for Monday then <laughs> but there's more big news about this Kickstarter coming next week it's it's big it's very big I'm very excited about it yeah. um but I think one thing I got to say is I got to give huge shouts out, shout outs to all of our creators for doing this work in COVID times like I know that was yeah. a huge stumbling block for a lot of people and um we had several people I would have loved to work with have to back out for these particular considerations like uh there was a Inu artist I really wanted to work with but they were like hey look I'm going back to the land this year it's safer uh so I won't be around my my work equipment and I'm like that's fair like go go ahead that's a good yeah. choice <laughs> so um yeah all of our artists working in all of the pressures of this past year, uh, still knocking it out of the park is amazing. So much. Wow. Uh, yeah, Julian Gordon, or, uh, do you have any final final parting question? Uh, no, I don't have a final parting question. I do want to say uh, how much I enjoyed um, gaining some insights about what I think of as a really, um, really interesting project. And I'm really going to be excited about this new announcement i'm sure but i really do want to thank you for taking the time to talk to talk to us today i uh i'll concur with that and i congratulate uh, you on on your work and the success of the kickstarter and uh look forward to seeing this uh this out and maybe use uh, 
some of it in my lit classes. We'll see see how that goes. Um, and I really do appreciate and commend you for the work you're doing. And thank you for your time and oh. insights today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really been an honor to talk to you all about this. All right, thanks a lot.